Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 10 this morning. Uh, last week, we started a new series in which we're going through uh, the book of Joshua as the nation of Israel is on the precipice of entering into the land that God had promised them. Of course, that's why it's called the promised land. Moses had died and the leadership over the nation was transitioning over to Joshua. God had called Joshua to trust the promises of God by entering the land with strength and courage to take what God had promised that he would deliver. But of course, that necessitated that they have the faith and the strength and the courage that God had called them to have to actually go into the land, that when you receive a promise that everywhere that your foot treads, God's going to give it to you, that necessitates your foot actually moving and you treading on the ground. When God says no one's going to be able to stand before you, kind of brings with it the presupposition that some people are going to, be tr that are going to try, even if unsuccessfully. The fact of the matter is that when God commands you to be strong and courageous, it typically means that you're going to need strength and courage to endure, to receive the promises that he has made. And now Joshua must take the message of God to the people of Israel. Because the one who receives the revelation has a responsibility to deliver that revelation to the people of God. There's a lot of unknown here, understand that, that God is not completely clear on how he's going to deliver on the promises. He just tells them, trust that I'm actually going to. But in leading the nation of Israel, understand that Joshua has a task of leading a people who did not have a 100% successful track record of actually exhibiting faith and obedience to the call of God. But that didn't matter. Joshua still obeyed the call of God in his life because if you want to lead, here's the thing, you actually have to lead people. I've heard it said many times that if you think you're a leader and you take a look behind you and no one's there, well, you're just taking a walk. You're not leading anyone. And so many people in life label themselves as leaders, consider themselves as leaders, think of themselves, put on their resume that I'm a leader. But there's a difference between saying you're a leader and thinking you're a leader and actually leading people. That is a difficult process, and Joshua is jumping headlong into that because God did not just give these commands for the sake of Joshua. God had given these commands for all of his people to enter into the land, which necessitated Joshua actually leading others into this calling because God wants his people to have a unity in his calling. God wants his people to unite for the purpose of the calling that he has made on their lives. But that unity demands faith in God's call that leads to lives that reflect that faith and actual real obedience. In verses 10 and 11, the writer notes, he says, Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. So give the people what God has given to you and prepare your provisions for within three days you're going to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Note number one this morning in the text that we must obey God even if you don't understand his call. You need to obey God even if you don't understand his call. Do you know God isn't after input? He's after submission. 
That's really what God is after in the lives of all the people. And sometimes there is a confusion that some people have about faith and grace. They believe that it means that nothing is required or demanded of them in their relationship with God. When the scripture reveals to us the very opposite of that, that's a huge misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. When God promises them the land and tells them to go, put forth the effort to take it, then he means for them to immediately go, to live in light of the promise, obey the command that he's given, because it's through the obedience to the command that you're going to receive the promise of God. So understand that if you want to know God's promises, friend, you're going to have to obey his commands. There is no other way. The effort doesn't earn the promise. Rather, the effort reveals the validity of faith in the promise. Because even as followers of Jesus, he earns us the promises of God through faith. But that faith then produces a life in which we lay claim to every promise that he's made in Scripture in real time. That he's promised us a purpose, but you have to live in light of that purpose. He's promised us a mission, but you have to live in light of that mission. You have to live in light of the promise if you're actually going to claim that you have received the promise. But where so many falter in their relationship with God is that we delay our obedience to a time where we understand it a little bit better. It's like, God, if you had just been a little bit clearer. God, if you would just help me to understand this a little bit more, then I will have the faith to order my life and the way that you've commanded me to order it. But understand, that's never what Scripture says we're supposed to do. The Scripture doesn't say that we obey God once we understand God. The Scripture says obey God. Submit. First, you're never going to understand God completely. You're a human being. You are limited. He is unlimited. You are finite. He is infinite. But secondly, when you demand someone be a little bit clearer, you're trying to exert your authority over that person. And so you, in your attempt to say, God, I would obey you. God, I would align my life with your promises if I just understood a little bit more why I can't be the way that I am, why I can't just sit sterile and stagnant in my life, why I need to further advance. What you are saying is, God, you must live to my standard. God, you must help me understand. God, you must obey me before I will obey you. And what you see there is disobedience. What you see there every single time, and I've heard the saying over and over again, I have no idea where it started, but delayed obedience is disobedience. God doesn't call the nation of Israel to wait a year till things make a little more sense. God doesn't say, Okay, guys, I get it. You didn't understand 40 years ago, and you probably don't understand now. So here is a map of the promised land that I've etched out for you. Here are the tactical advances that I'm going to have you to take. Here's the equipment that you have that's better than the equipment that the people in Canaan have. Here's how you're going to conquer the land. Here's how your foot is going to tread over every ground. Here's how you're going to be strong and courageous. Here's how it's all going to work. God doesn't do that. God just says, in three days, go take the land. Every time 
we tell God we would if we just understood. Or every time we look to God and say, I don't understand. Or every time we look to God and say, this is a busy season of my life. Once this season is over, I'll get things right. Once this season is over, I'll align my life for your purposes. Once this season is over, I will seek to grow into the person of your design that you have me to be. That moment is when you are disobeying God, but you don't want to believe that. A little parenting tip that's going to offend some of you. Don't do the one, two, three thing. You know what you're teaching your kids? You're teaching your kids that one and two aren't serious. Only three is. You're teaching your kids that you aren't a serious person. I've never said one, two, three. I've never said one. I say the command. If they don't, if they don't live up to my command, punishment, discipline right there. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You don't, you don't disobey me on one. You don't disobey me on two. And you don't disobey me on three. Buddy, if I were to get to three... Your life, no parole. That's it. It's over for you. But we live our lives functionally as though we're allowed to delay disobedience until we see fit to do what is right. And we even teach our children the same thing. Because here's the deal. I'm not raising children. I'm raising adults. And any standard that I give them now, they're going to have later. And if I teach them that they can delay their obedience to me, I'm teaching them that they can walk into the world and they are in charge. That's not the way that it goes. There are standards. There's a society. There's a way that things are supposed to go according to God's word. Because mostly I'm teaching them that God doesn't mean what he says when he calls you to obedience. And what a terrible lesson to teach to my children. But note, we teach our children terrible lessons also when we treat the commands of God as though God is in heaven saying, one, don't let me get to three, buster. If that's the God that you have in mind, you have an unsovereign Lord. Our Lord makes his commands and he says, walk in them. And when we hesitate, that is a moment we need to repent of because that is a moment of faithlessness. When God says move, he means move because you will never take an inch that you don't move on in this life. Friend, the fact of the matter is is that faith responds to promises by action. And a lot of people respond to God's promises with questions. When God gives command in light of a promise, there's no room for delay because that isn't faith. That is arrogance. Some people will tell you that doubt is great. Friends, doubt is no virtue. Doubt typically is rooted in a great arrogance in your life where you've made a standard of proof that God has to live up to. And if God doesn't live up to your standard of proof, well, bro, you're not going to give over your obedience to him. That's not virtuous. That's self-centeredness. That's self-absorption. That's narcissism. That is the idolatry of self over the worship of God. That is arrogance. Faith produces action. Joshua received the command of God. And note what Joshua immediately does. He gathers the leaders and he says, go through the camp because in three days we are walking. 
Note that he doesn't say there's going to be a safe space in the corner of the camp where if you have doubts and you need a couple of extra days to figure this move of God out, well, we're going to give you that safe space to work it out. No, Joshua says move because we're not staying. That's not an option that Joshua gives them. He told them to prepare to move because that is what faith produces when your faith is legitimate. Otherwise, your faith isn't legitimate. How do I know that? And what I I think is really the Proverbs of the New Testament, in James chapter 2, it gives us this great analogy. What good is it, my brothers, James 2, starting in 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without actually giving them the needs for the body, what good is that to them? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that is alive produces work in accordance with the calling of God. It isn't ambiguous. It aligns with the vision and demands that God has set forward. For too long you have treated your discipleship as though the advances that you will make in your discipleship is some type of ambiguous, unmeasurable goal. If your goals are unmeasurable, friend, I tell you, you're never going to reach them. The scripture has set out clear indicators of what it looks like to advance in faith in Jesus Christ. You do not just have faith with no change in direction or action. Faith brings change into your life. You move in a new direction with new goals. Therefore, your faith in God is the one that is laid out in Scripture. And if you align with that vision and that mission, you know that you are advancing in faith. It's fascinating. This is exactly the way that Jesus described it for us. We frequently use Matthew chapter 7 to engage false teachers, which of course is appropriate, but we shouldn't just reduce it to that. It's not the only context by which these verses can be applied. In Matthew 7, 21, it notes the words of Jesus here, that it is the one who does the will of the Father that possesses legitimate faith. This is on that day of judgment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is not a will that you conjure up according to your standards. How often do we do that? We superimpose our standards on top of God's to pacify our lack of legitimate faith. We kind of usurp His authority with our own. This is the will that God has set forward in Scripture and made complete in Jesus. He has not been unclear If you have true faith, then your life will begin to produce fruit of aligning with the calling of God in the gospel towards the mission and the purposes that he's put forward in life. I tell you, you will over time understand the calling of God and the vision of God better. You will. But God does not command us to wait until we understand God has commanded us to move. 
We don't wait until he has met whatever standard of proof that I put forward before I'm supposed to submit to obeying his commands in my life. Rather, God says, as you obey, you will understand a little bit more. The fog will begin to lift a little bit more. Over the last 20 years of my life, I've grown to understand God in new ways all the time through his word. Not because he's giving me new revelation, but because I'm giving him new obedience. Because I'm repenting of old sin more and more. Because I'm taking hold of what he has promised me in his word more and more and more. As I align my life through faith, God clarifies so much to me. But he wants obedience before you will have a lot of that understanding. Number two this morning. Understand that faith prepares God's people to fight for peace. Faith prepares God's people to fight for peace. I think that's a great thing that people miss from this section of Scripture. Look at what he says in verse 12. He's talking about the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Joshua said to them, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this place. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor, that's an important part, all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. God uses your commitments to deliver on his promises. And this is kind of a, a, if you don't know the history of Israel, this section is kind of confusing because you're like, why are these two and a half tribes singled out that they must send the men of valor? Well, it's rooted in Numbers 32 while Moses was still alive. Moses perceived that a request that came from them was rooted in a, a bit of trickery. Numbers 32, the two and a half tribes here went to Moses and said, hey, this land that's on this side of the Jordan, we kind of like it. We like the river life. Virginia people get that, all right? We, we like life on the river. And he looks at them and he, and, he, and he says, well, that's great. You can stay on this side of the Jordan, but that doesn't nullify the commitment that God has put into your life that you've got to take the land on the other side of the Jordan too. And in Numbers 32, it says, Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Moses perceived that their request was rooted in faithlessness and laziness. Friend, I need you to understand that in your life, laziness is rooted in faithlessness. So if you, by nature or habit, are a lazy person, that means that you are a faithless person. 
Moses perceived that this was a conspiracy for them to look out for themselves, stay behind, be comfortable, not risk anything, and let everybody else risk their lives to live up to the call of God. And Moses confronts them dead on and says, you can have a comfortable life, but that doesn't mean you're allowed to live a faithless life. For so many of us, even the everyday comforts that we enjoy because of the blessings of God in our life, they lull us into apathy. They lull us in not taking the commands of God seriously. They lull us in not taking our fidelity to the Lord seriously. And to that, Joshua says, remember the commitment you made to the Lord. Do not allow your comfort to dictate your commitment because the commitment to the Lord means that you must march into battle. And also understand that in opposition to what many people would say about God in this world, Numbers 32 tells us that God will send his people to war and that God does have enemies. I mean, he clearly says, send them to the enemies. Friends, we have to understand in Joshua 1, he's saying that your commitments determine your level of faithfulness. They had committed to taking the land. Therefore, faithfulness meant that living up to that commitment required that coming before anything else in their lives. Do not let the comforts of this world lull you to sleep. Do not let it drown your faith. Enjoy, of course, the wonderful material blessings of the Lord. We are a blessed people materially. And enjoy those blessings. Celebrate those blessings. Thank God for those blessings. But so quickly, good things can become idolatrous things. Where we fear risking those things to obey the Lord. And so we say, well, maybe I'm, that's just not my calling. You know how often I hear people say, that's just not my calling. What you mean is I just want to be in sin a little bit longer. God calls you to commit to discipleship. Do you know that when God called you to have faith in Jesus Christ, at the same breath, he was calling you to a life of discipleship. And so when you make the statement, when this season of life is over, I'll get serious about my discipleship. What you're subconsciously saying is, I'm not going to be a Christian right now. Now, I'm not going to go to hell, but I'm not going to be a Christian either right now until this season of life is over. You know what follows spring? Summer. You know what follows summer? Fall. You know what follows fall? Winter. Another season is always going to be coming. I've been waiting for more time since I was about 18, and I have less and less of it every season. Friends, your comfort is dictating your faith and you have to allow God to speak into your life so that your faith will dictate everything in your life. They had committed to taking the land. Therefore, Joshua came to them and said, rent is due. Time to fight. But note also, Many of you have committed your life away from faithfulness to the call of God in your life. You wish you could commit to more discipleship, but commitments won't allow it right now. Here's the thing you got to understand. You're committing to lesser things. 
Friends, I know that every one of you want to reach the potential that God has given you in this life and in this world, but you will not reach it so long as you commit to the lesser things. God wants you to commit to the greater things. God is not calling you to align your life with his vision to put a governor on the gas pedal of your life. No, God is calling you to submit to his design to take the self-imposed governor that you have put on the gas pedal off so that you can reach the great potential of his design for your life. But your faithlessness is refusing to allow you to live to the design of God, which would intuitively give you the life that he has always designed for you to live. Friend, do not commit to lesser things, strangling your commitment to the things that God wants you to walk into. Does God have your primary commitments, thus giving everything else the leftovers? Or does God get the leftovers? Friends, if God is getting the leftovers of your life, stop scratching your head and asking yourself why there's no growth in your life. I can tell you why there's no growth in your life. Disobedience. So often, all the time, people will leave the church and they will say, I'm just not growing here. It doesn't offend me because there's nothing I can do to make you grow. I'll be honest with you. If you come here week after week, hear sermon after sermon, month after month, sermon after sermon, year after year, sermon after sermon, and you don't walk out those doors and align your life with the purposes of God, friend, I will promise you, you're not going to grow. There's not going to be an ounce of growth in your life. But here's the deal. Don't blame me. Don't blame another pastor. Don't blame a group leader here. Don't blame a serve team leader here. Don't blame your buddy Susie. It's not her fault either. It is on you. If you want to grow, you have to take the revelation of God from his word, apply it to your life, step out on faith, and actually live the mission of Jesus according to the calling of God and the gospel that he has given you. He's given me the same calling that he's given you where growth is concerned. And so if I've got to sacrifice in my life to go and fight the battle, you have to do the same thing because there is no bench warmer on team Jesus. There's faithful and there's faithless. Get on the field and live out your faith and stop making excuses excuses just simply don't matter. Everybody's got something. Everyone's enduring hardship. Everyone is suffering at some level. Yes, some greater than others, but understand that God has brought every single one of them into your life, and you simply need the faith to look at him and say, Lord, how do you want to use this to grow me? Not I but Christ. And also don't believe the lies of the world. You know, it's clarifying on some of the modern controversies that we deal with, that the responsibility for leading and fighting fell on the men. 
told you that statement, men of valor, was going to be important because the text refers to the men. And it specifically says that they were, that these two and a half tribes were to leave the women and the children in the land. And the men of valor needed to march into the promised land to fight the war for the promised land. This should instruct us on many of the attempts in modern society to flatten gender into an egalitarian state where effeminate men refuse to lead their families. Friends, this is a sin against God. This is intuitive to the way that we should live our lives anyway. We should not send women to fight our wars. It is the men who have the call of God to lay their lives on the line. Notice that the nation of Israel did not have a DEI department. They were very unequitable about the way that they fought wars. They expected the men to fight. I just ask you a question, men. If something goes bump in the night, you think, I think I hear someone. Oh man, I pray I never hear the story that you looked at your wife. Honey, heard something. I don't know what it is. I'm going to get under the bed. <laughs> report, report back what you find. You laugh because it's obvious. There's something that the image of God has put in us that says, man, that is a coward. Something's wrong with that guy. Here's the deal. If I find that out, you're going under church discipline immediately. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. I'm questioning your salvation if you do that, man. The Holy Spirit needs to teach you to lead like a man and risk your life. The men went into battle. The men of valor went into battle. Story emerged a few years ago from a mass shooting that took place in a movie theater where there were three young men on dates with three young women, and they found their bullet-riddled bodies over the women. The women lived, the men died. And you know, no one said chauvinists. You never heard that. You know what you heard? Heroes. Heroes. And you know what would have happened if the roles had been reversed? If those men had lived and the women had died covering their bodies, they would have had to have moved to an undisclosed location because the story of their lives would have been cowards. Cowards. It's intuitive to the design of God that men lay their lives down and make the ultimate sacrifice so that the women and children may go free. And this description in this text teaches us the design of God for taking the land. Men, stop being so soft-handed. Build yourself up so that the family knows that when it hits the fan, the husband, dad, he's the one that's going to be standing in front of the family taking the fire. Don't leave any question in your family's lives as to whether or not you have courage. Live that courage. There is a fight to engage in this life. Note also verse 15 where Joshua tells them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. That is an important phrase because he's speaking about the fulfillment of the promise. He's telling them there is a fight to engage before you enter eternal rest. This is similar to the idea found in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 4, where the author of Hebrews tells the church, 
He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Fascinating phrase, isn't it? Doesn't seem right. He's saying you have to work. You have to fight so that you can enter rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is the mission that God has called us to. Here's the deal. I have rest in the gospel. I am forgiven. I have been justified by my faith. I have been reconciled in my relationship to God. That's past tense. I've taken hold of those things through faith. They are mine. I don't struggle towards those at all. But God has told me there's a fight to have before I enter the kingdom of heaven. And the mission of Jesus is that fight. And until then, I must strive for obedience in his mission so that, and here's the warning of Hebrews 4.11, I don't fall into disobedience. Because if you cease to strive before the rest of God, you've revealed that you don't actually have faith in God. Jeremiah chapter 6, 14 through 16 speaks of the counterfeit peace that the world tries to deceive you with says that the world will tell you that they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. You ever seen somebody that would be caught in sin and they weren't even embarrassed by it? Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. And verse 16 is devastating. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find a rest for your souls. And here's the devastating line. But they said, we will not walk in it. What a shameful proclamation. God makes it abundantly. Here's why confusion is not the problem. God made that pretty abundantly clear to the nation of Israel. And they looked back at God and they said, no. We'll believe the lies over your truth. This is what it looks like to fall into disobedience, friends. When you cease to strive for the mission of Jesus in this world, you will fall. He calls you to the good way to walk, where you will find rest through your obedience, and you must obey that call. But number three this morning, understand that unity emerges from shared faith and obedience. Unity emerges from shared faith and obedience. Verse 16, they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. The NIV says, whatever you command and wherever you command. It's the whatever, wherever faith. It's that Isaiah 6 faith that Isaiah had where he says, here am I, Lord, send me. He didn't have a location. He just said, I'll go through faith. That is where unity is found. That's the cry of the people of God. Whatever, wherever. Shared faith means shared mission. It's true that whatever and wherever is difficult, and one of the most difficult things to find is unity, because contemporary culture is increasingly divided between righteousness and wickedness, and there's even division within the universal church over how that righteousness should be applied in the present world. But the key is an understanding that there is a unity to be had, but it is only ever found through submitting to God's call in our lives. 
for many, the struggle to live united with a community of believers in a local church, by the way, that's where it begins, is rooted in a, this kind of autonomous reflex that the world has conditioned us to have. Here's what I mean by that. You believe that you are a unique snowflake with a unique design and a unique calling with a unique purpose based on a unique gifting with your unique personality. When you add all of that uniqueness up, do you want to know what you get? Selfishness and disunity. When you view yourself through that paradigm, you're building a life of self-centeredness. You're just a selfish person struggling in sin. Philippians 2.2 instructs us where to actually find Christian unity. The Apostle Paul writes, and he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is going to require you sacrifice some of the uniqueness that you hold so tightly to. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. It got more and more united as he goes through that list linguistically. This is the collective calling of the church of Jesus Christ. Verses 16 through 18 there in Joshua 1 finds the nation uniting under the leadership of Joshua to obey the collective call of God on all of their lives. So long as they stayed submitted to the mission that God had called them to, pursuing it in obedience to what God had commanded, they would experience a God-given unity as a people together in worship of God. That is what, that which is unique about your gifting and calling. And yes, there are some things, but it's given to you by God to pursue unity within the greater calling of the people of God that we share together as a church of Christ. Friends, when you follow Jesus Christ, you reject selfishness. You pursue submission to God, seeking unity around the calling of God and the gospel. This is what it means to be the people of God. And I'll tell you, if you are a divisive person who always wants your way for your purposes, then you are not submitting to the call of God. It's that simple in Scripture. You're actually submitting to the influence of Satan because he's the great divider. Obedience to God's call leads everyone in the same direction down the same path. Amos 3.3, 3, which some of you are just finding out is a book of the Bible. <laughs> it's one of the minor prophets. It's in, the, it's a, it's in that you know, uh, table of contents, I promise. But Amos 3.3, 3, one of the minor prophets, in, within the middle of one of his prophecies is one of the most common sense sayings in the world that we act so confused about. Here's what Amos writes. He says, he asks a question. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? You don't need a commentary for that. Some of you are like, the Spirit's not illuminating that. I, I, what? No, literally, if you want to walk with somebody, you got to figure out where you're going to meet. All right? And that's what he's saying here. He says that's what unity looks like. You have to agree upon a standard by which we're going to meet at a certain point, And that is where we're going to begin our journey together. Yet Christians struggle with this. 
You will despair over the lack of unity in the church, but then in the next breath, refuse to agree to a specific meeting place so that you can walk in full accord with other Christians. Here's how Joshua led. He trusted God to set the meeting place and then instructed Israel to follow him from there. That is why God has always gifted his people with leaders. The people resoundingly looked at Joshua and committed that as they followed Moses, they would follow Joshua. But look at the way it ends. Verse 18, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Friends, that's how serious God takes disunity. That's why when you seek to divide the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it says that you must be excommunicated from the church. In other words, you're asked to leave. God takes unity very seriously. So we should too. But the key is that when the church comes together in faith, we can pursue the calling of God together by advancing the mission of discipleship together as the people of God always have in unity. A few application points. Obey the commands of God immediately. Friends, that needs to be a core value of your life. Because as you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not that God is giving new revelation. No, his word is sufficient. It's that as you follow Jesus Christ, more of a spotlight is going to be shown on your sin all the time. And you're going to need, as you learn the commands of God, to have a commitment in your life. As soon as I see them, I'm not going to turn to the right. I'm not going to turn to the left. I'm going to obey them immediately. Secondly, commit to things that grow your faith. Commit to them. Give God the first fruit. Don't give him what's left over. Because the leftovers, friend, they get smaller and smaller all the time to where you're going to find yourself not following Jesus at all. Thirdly, combat the lies of the world with the truth of God. And here's the truth of God. Then fourthly, unite with the people of God for the purpose of God. Because here's the deal. Unity is worthless without the purpose of God. The purpose of God demands unity, but without the purpose of God, unity does not last because you're going to get sick of each other. It's just the way that it goes. When there's no purpose behind your unity, all that you have is personality and none of you have that great of a personality. All right. <laughs> but with the purposes of God, we agree at a point to walk together and we have an objective anchor to make sure we're on the right path. 